Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Well, it is a joy to be able to share with you all from God's Word. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to go with me, turn to Psalm 91, it's where we're going to spend much of our time today. And um, I don't know about you, but how many in the room, you, when you think about actors, you are a fan of Will Smith? Any Will Smith fans in the room? We got a few Will Smith fans, all right? Anybody like Men in Black back in the day? Uh, Maybe, let me give you one. Anybody like or watch religiously Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Any Fresh Prince fans? All right, I thought there was a few. All right, don't front. You guys like him, I know that. We love Fresh Prince. If we're honest, Will Smith really is one of the only legends of that day. And uh, I would say the Fresh Prince, about probably 85% of you, even those that are streaming live, you could sing the entire theme song, couldn't you? You can sing it, right? Let's try. Now, this is the story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there, and I'll tell you how I became prince of a town called... Yeah, boom, boom. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. We like some Will Smith, all right? You talk about Will Smith. It was a couple years ago. This is a long time ago. In one of the seasons, season four, by the way, that Will is dating a girl... And uh, his dad, her dad wants to take him in an interrogation scene. So he puts him in a beat up old plane. And if you remember this in season four, he gets him up in the air and, and uh, he's interrogating him. And as he asks a question, if he didn't like the response, he would do like a barrel roll. And Will was just wigging out. I mean, he's not a pilot, of course. And so then he would do a flip and a turn. He would ask him another question. And he's doing all these crazy things until finally, at the top of his lungs, he starts screaming because the engine dies. And while Will is there, unequipped to be a pilot, the dad just looks at him and throws out his parachute and deboards the plane. And here is Will Smith on the plane, and he's screaming, and you see the plane going down. And we 90s kids, we love this because you go into a cliffhanger, right? It's one of those cliffhanger moments where you go into a commercial break. Now, listen, I know Gen Zers, you don't know what a commercial is, okay? I feel sorry for you. You've never, you've never had a cliffhanger. You don't even know what that is, all right? But, but us, we millennials and baby boomers and, and the tweener generation, the next generation, we, we know those cliffhanger moments, right? I want to show you just real quickly a little bit of this episode. Watch this. See if you, rem- if, if, see if you remember. You didn't finish your buffalo wing. I can't eat anymore. Sure you can. Just put some hot sauce on there. Uh, no, no, th- no, thank you. Boy, I don't know what you're talking about. You better put some red rooster on there. Look, um, hey, I, 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 do you think you could just land the plane, you know, and uh, I'll just walk back to L.A.? Oh, flying upside down make you a little queasy, doesn't it, boy? Well, no, I'm not a... Watch the end of this clip, right? <laughs> Fast pace. Here it is. This is the fifth thing. (laughs) 
Now, it's super funny when you see this whole episode in its full context, right? But when you stop laughing, you're like, dang, the Christian life can kind of be like that. I mean, it really can, right? Like, it seems to be smooth. I can go in and out, do the loops, do the tricks, but then things begin to mess up and the engine fails and all you know how to do is either like jump ship or yell help, right? I don't know if you realize this or not. I think you've lived enough years, but life is super unpredictable. Like when you get married, you knew it was gonna be tough, but you weren't expecting to navigate the valleys of seven years of infertility. You weren't expecting your marriage to be on the rocks or even worse, your spouse leaving you for another person. Some of you, as you've gotten older, you thought, you know what, you'd be married by now, but you're not, you're still waiting. You knew death was certain in life, but you weren't expecting to see your loved one's body debilitated by cancer and suffering. Or maybe your baby suddenly miscarried, you weren't expecting that. You thought by now that the same sin struggle that you had for so many years would be over with and it would be done with. You thought your love for God would be so much deeper today than it really actually is, but you find yourself still loving the things of this world more than sometimes you love your heavenly Father. When these things happen, challenges happen, what we begin to do is we tend to question God and we wonder, like, what in the world is going on in my life? God, why do you allow bad things to happen? Why is this taking place? God, why aren't you helping me defeat this sin? What do I, what did I do, God, to deserve this in my life? And every time we turn on the news, we live in America, right? Let's don't kid ourselves. We hear about some horrible tragedy. I could start naming them, but there's no sense in it because six months from now, there's going to be 40 more tragedies, right? It's the world we live in. I find myself asking sometimes, even as a, not as just a dad, not even a pastor, how long, Lord? How long will it continue this way in our world? We see this same question in a lot of the Psalms. We see the same question in a lot of the Old Testament. Have you ever found yourself in the spot where you were questioning God? Like, how long will I be sim- single? How long will I have to deal with my spouse leaving me? How long will we have to sit through radiation? How long will I be tempted by the same sin? How long, Lord, how long? How long? We're going to see all these questions in the midst of despair, but after the questions, we begin to see the despair turns to trust. I want to go ahead and forewarn you today. This is somewhat of a difficult word to say. Um, It really is a difficult word to say, and maybe in some ways it'll be a difficult word to hear, but I pray that it's actually very life-giving and very freeing. I pray that when you leave in just a few moments that you actually feel more liberated, but it may be tough in the middle, so I'm forewarning you. It may be tough, and you may want to call me heretical even at times in the middle, but stick with me, and we'll get to where I think God wants us to land. I don't want to be too luxury, although I do have to explain some pretty weighty stuff. I don't want to be too luxury today, so if you think I'm getting luxury, hold on a minute. I'll shout, holler, and scream right after that, all right? Let's read the text together, Psalm 91. Start with me in verse 1. I'm reading the New Revised Standard Version. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, listen to the contention, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, and whom shall I trust? Jump down to verse 9. And the Bible says, because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you. No scourge come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bind you up or bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone and you will tread on the lion and the adder and the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Those who love me I will deliver, God says. I will protect those who know my name. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. 
with long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. Now, on the face of this promise from God, it seems to say that if you are hidden in God rightly, and you are hidden in God tightly, and you are intimately related to God, that bad things don't happen to you. That's what it seems to say. God is essentially saying to us, if you make me your refuge, no evil shall befall you. I will protect you and you will tread on serpents and lions won't harm you and you will walk over mountains and and, and I will send my angels to guard you. This seems, if you're honest, let's just read it honestly, to promote and promise that if we will wrap up our lives in God and wrap up our lives in God's life tightly, we won't even stub our toe in life. He will send his angels. But we all know that is not true. We all know better than that, reading Psalm 91, because we've lived life. So because God is not a liar, that cannot be what this text means. This is a contention. There are many of these in Scripture. That cannot be what the text is actually implying. That this is what it, even though it seems to be promising, is not actually promising this. Now this is where I want to begin today, if you'll start there with me. It is not enough that we read Scripture in the 21st century. It's how we read Scripture that matters. I want to say it this way. It's not enough that we believe the promises of God. It's that we believe the promises of God rightly. I I want you just for a few moments to think of the devil, just for a few moments. We often, can I just propose this, don't think enough or realize enough just how tricky he is. We often talk about the devil like his temptations are pretty obvious ones, right? Like the devil's temptations are very obvious. For example, I heard a sermon not long ago that started in the book of Genesis. You've heard a sermon like this before. And the serpent slithers up to Eve and starts talking to Adam and Eve. And the serpent says, hath God said that you shouldn't eat from this tree? And the point of the sermon was, this is how the devil tempts us. God speaks a word to us, and then the devil tempts us to doubt God who said it. Um, maybe that's how the devil works sometimes, but that's not how he normally works. He doesn't slither up to us and ask us to doubt the God that we love and whether or not God has really said what God has said. That's not where the devil is tricky at all. If you love God and someone calls you to question God, you can get through that pretty easily. You just say no to the tempter. You say no to the one questioning, and you put trust in God. If you come up to me after the gathering today and you say something rude about my wife or say something that would question my trust about my wife's fidelity to me, I'm going to dismiss you because I know her. I won't listen to you. I may not even know you, but I do know her, and I know her heart, and I know who she is, and I know her life. I know her heart. So if the devil's only business is to get us to question God and we love God, how tempted are we ever really in life? We're not really tempted. Anyone ever seen a movie with Jesus in the desert, the wilderness? Anybody ever seen this? They're all terrible, right? There's never been a good movie done by anyone, anywhere, that does the temptation justice, right? Some of you go to Israel this next year, you'll see the Judean wilderness, you'll see wilderness and, and, and Judean wilderness and all the, the dry, arid conditions and the fact that Jesus fasted for 40 days. But when you see the movies, it doesn't even look like a real temptation. Like, you don't have to be Jesus to know if a serpent slithers up to you and starts speaking to you, you don't give in to him. Right? Like, no thanks. Cool. You're a serpent. I'm Jesus. Like, you don't even have to be Jesus to say no to the serpent. And if you've ever watched these movies, he's dressed up in this black skin or he's got a cape with a pitchfork and he's got these horns on him and he's got horrible, horrific skin and he's got worms coming out of his nose, right? You don't have to be smart to say no to that. It's like, no thanks. I won't take that temptation. But that's not what the Bible says Satan is like. The Bible says Satan is an angel of light. 
The Bible does not say that Satan can be deceived or, or is rightly understood or perceived upon his entrance a lot of times. He is an angel of light. So he is not tempting you to doubt God's word. Maybe he does that sometimes. The devil's real trick is to get you to believe unfaithfully. The devil's real trick is to get you to believe something God has said, but unfaithfully believe what God has said. Now, many of us, I'm just, I want to track with me a minute. Many of us have been taught that just believing is the goal. We grew up in evangelical churches, Protestant churches, where believing is the goal. Believe God and believe God as intently as possible. But that's not the goal of Scripture. That's the goal of Satan, is that we would believe very strongly, but believe unfaithfully. What God wants for us is to believe faithfully. What God wants for us is to believe and trust what he has actually promised and not what we have vainly imagined him to have promised to us. That's what God wants for us. Because if I have, catch this, intense belief, passionate belief, but it's rooted in a lie, I will be disappointed in my outcome, not because God is unfaithful, but because my expectations are false. And I think many of us have been trained all our lives to be believed strongly in misunderstandings of God's promises or misapprehensions of our understanding of God's promises. And we're living in lots of disappointment because we have false expectations of of what God is actually going to do. And what we do is we live our lives waiting on God to do stuff he will never do while God is waiting on us to do stuff we will never do because we're waiting on God to do the stuff he will never do for us. And so much of what we call living the life of faith is struggling in this contention with the disappointments that are there only because we have bad expectations rooted in misunderstandings and misapprehensions of what God has actually promised us in his word. Now, if you've made it this far, you're going to be okay. Okay, you're going to be okay. Now, let's go to our text in Luke chapter 4. And with that lens, let's begin to understand the real trickery of the devil. This is the story of Jesus' temptation. He was baptized in the Jordan River and taken out, driven into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. Start with me, verse 1. Now, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led, driven by the Spirit in the wilderness. Where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. I don't care how many movies you've seen. Jesus was not tempted for 20 minutes of the last 40th day. Okay, movies, he was tempted for 40 days, okay? I know we've only seen it in 20-minute segments, but he's not just tempted for 20 minutes out of 40 days. It's 40 days. And Satan comes to him. He ate nothing during those 40 days. And when they were over, he was finished. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus was hungry. He's saying, hey, listen, Jesus, you have the ability to change circumstances around you. You're hungry. Make, make things happen for yourself. Turn the rock into bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. So then the devil led him and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you I will give their glory and all of this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone as I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. In other words, I want you to worship me. I want you to do the what I, I want you to use God's promises for your own means, essentially. I want you to. And Jesus said, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now listen, he took him to the highest place in the holiest city, in the holiest place, to share with him the third temptation. And he placed him on the pinnacle and he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for here. 
For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Where is Satan quoting from? Psalm 91, what we just read. See, the devil's real trick is not to get us to doubt if God has said something. The devil's real trick is to get us to believe strongly in something that God has said or has not said, but we are fully convinced that God has said. That's the real trick. Is that Satan wants us to use God's word against God so that we are impervious to repentance in an area that we think we have faith. See, this is the goal of Satan. This is the great temptation of Satan. you got to follow with me. To believe strongly in something God has not said. Here's the real trick. To believe strongly, but to believe unfaithfully. Because when you believe strongly, but unfaithfully, you become impervious to repentance. Because how can anybody in the church going to break through to you that your faith is actually rooted in something wrong? You won't listen. Well, Pastor Craig, how can it be wrong to believe God's promises? Well, you aren't believing God's promises. You are believing a misapprehended notion of God's promises. You are believing what we could say distorted distorted claims of God's promises that lead to bad desires and lead to false expectation, which then leads to a life of disappointment and frustrations because you're waiting on God to do something God's not going to do, and he is waiting on you to do something you're not going to do. And listen to me, Satan's... When Satan wants to do the most intense temptation in the life of our Savior, when he wants to do the most intense trick he can give him, here's what he does. He he wants to get Jesus to claim the promises of God in a false way. He wants to get Jesus to misapprehend God's truth. And verse 12, Jesus said, nope. Man, look at verse 12. Go back to the verse. Verse 12 How does he respond to him? Jesus said, it is said or written, do not put your Lord, Lord your God, to the test. Everybody say test. Can I tell you what it means to test God? To use his promises in ways that he didn't mean them. Testing God means I'm using God's promises in ways that God did not mean those promises. To use his word against him for your own ends and not God's ends. And this drives the devil away. Once Jesus says this to the devil, the devil's done. He leaves him. Now listen, when we misapprehend the promises of God, when we take them wrongly and believe them intensely, we end up turning what he means to be bread into stones. The title of today's message is Bread, Not Stones. The temptation of Jesus, number one, was to turn these stones into bread because you need food. And Jesus says, no, we live by the word of God. But when you take the word of God, which is bread to you, when you take the word of God, which is nourishment to you, and you twist it, or better yet, it is twisted for you by some other leader so that you misunderstand what he purposes for you, then you take the bread of God and you make it stones. You take the nourishment God wants and you make it something hard. You take what God is trying to nourish you with and make it something that is not beneficial to you. The temptation to Jesus was to turn these stones into bread. Think about how many times in your life and in my life you've seen Christians thinking they were doing good speaking death to someone else. How many times in counseling have you seen Christians thinking they were speaking gospel, but they were actually speaking death. There's so many examples I could give you. I'm just going to give you a few of them. I think of a man in my last church who suffered with depression badly, and he lost his spouse early. And the comfort, quote-unquote, other Christians offered him, especially when his grief lasted longer than they wanted his grief to last. They didn't want his grief to last so long. The 
comfort other Christians offered him of how you're supposed to trust God, brother. And if you trust God, you don't have to worry about these things. And God has a plan for you. And God, if surely if he allowed this to happen on this other side of it, he's got a blessing for you. And listen, all we're trying to do because we want to defend God is we're trying to account for God. So listen to me, follow me. All of those ways are of accounting for God are actually not true of God. They're taking the bread of God, which God wants to comfort a brother, and they're making them stone. We are turning God's comfort into something hard. And most of us in this room, if we're honest, have had other people think they're speaking gospel to us when in fact they're speaking death to us. And what's moving them, please understand, I have compassion. I've done it before. I've failed miserably in this area. What's moving them on their side is that they are believing strongly in an account of God's promises that is actually rooted in a lie, but they don't know that. And they are wanting to think of God as getting through this life in a way that they want to get through it. But that's not what God has promised us. Did you know this? God's not promised us to get through life the way we want to get through life. Does anybody know this? See, he doesn't promise us to get through life the way we want to get through life. So Psalm 91 and every other promise of God in Scripture has to be heard as God intends them to be heard, or we end up turning the bread of God into the stone that brings death to others around us or death to ourselves. So here's what I've been asking the Lord to do. Lord, would you help us to give up false understandings of God's promises that lead to bad desires and false expectations that lead us in a life of frustration and confusion while we're waiting on God to do what he won't do and he's waiting on us to do what we're unwilling to do. So I asked the Lord this morning in my prayer time, I said, Spirit, purge dwelling place of all of the bad senses of what you've promised so we can live faithfully and know where to put our real trust. Really what we can hold on to. Purge us of bad misappropriations of God's promises. Purge us, Spirit. Purge us of misnotions and misapprehended notions. There's a phrase we've all appealed to. I'm No condemnation here. I've appealed to it too. You've appealed to it. We've all heard Christians appeal to it. I read an excerpt from a book from a, a great Christian colleague some time ago, and it so disturbed me and so stirred me. I thought, I've got to preach on that at some point, but I don't know when. I, well, the time has come. And the phrase that this person communicated was, this phrase that we've all appealed to at some point in our life. In our Christian life, I've heard it, you've heard it, we've all said it. And that phrase is, God is in control. God is in control. Click on a Facebook post. Somebody going through a difficult time? Click on the comments. God is in control. God has a plan. Hold on. Can I just say to us, we from this point forward never want to say that again. We never want to say God is in control. Instead, what we want to say is God is sovereign. We want to say God is sovereign. Here's what I mean. To say that God is sovereign is not to say that God is in control. It is also not to say that God is not in control. God's sovereignty is not like control at all. What do you mean, Craig? It is not true that God is at the mercy of what's happening on planet Earth. It is not true. It is not true that God is surprised by anything happening on the planet. That is not true. It is not true that God is threatened by any world leader. That is not true. It is not true that anything any human can do can keep God from being God. That is not true. Nothing can stop God from being God. At the same time, he's not out of control, but he's also not in control. 
He's sovereign because his relationship to the world is unlike anything else's relationship to the world. God is sovereign. God's not in control and God's not out of control. Control, catch this, would be able to act in a way that would make the other thing not what it is on its own. When you have control over somebody, they are not free. If I control you, you are doing what I will, not what you will. God does not do that. God is not in control. God is not in control of your life. He is not in control of our world in that sense. He is given freedom. That's not what control is, but God is sovereign. You know what sovereign means? It means God is creative, which means he creates my freedom. God's sovereignty creates my freedom. What are you saying, Craig? I'm going to get a little bit lectury. Hold on just a minute. Just follow with me again, okay? I'm going to get loud and shout. You're going you're to make it, all right? Follow me just a minute. Control takes your freedom away from you and takes God's freedom and forces it on you. But creativity and sovereignty does not impede your freedom at all, and yet God still gets to be God. God's still God. God's still God over our life. God's still God over this earth. And we do not want to say God is in control because if God is in control, then nothing that is happening is really happening. God is making it happen. God is pushing buttons to make the world what the world is. So when we talk about our salvation, let me explain this. I don't want to say God made me get saved. But, but our, a lot of our Christian brothers, they believe in this. They believe in this really strong predestination. So what they're saying is that God made me get saved. It's called synergy. It's called monergy, that you have no part in the salvation process. God, it's all monergistic. It's, in other words, God did it. And we are synergistic. We believe it's a cooperation. But, but I don't want to say that God made me get saved. Why? Because it's then not my salvation. It's just what God forced on me. It's just something God is, I'm, in essence, I'm a puppet in God's hand, in God's plan on the earth. But I also don't want to say that I'm saving myself. So what do I mean when I say I'm saved by grace? Do you ready? What does it mean to be saved by grace? It means this. I mean that it is freely God and it is freely me. It, it's not 50% God and then 50% me. It's not God walking me all the way through the journey of life to the last mile and then saying, Craig, you take the last mile. No, no, no. That's not what sovereignty is at all. It's 100% God and it is 100% Craig Mosgrove. Why? Because God's relationship to me is creative and sovereign. It is not controlling. It is unlike control completely. Totally unlike control. It's a kind of relationship that only God can have with us, by the way. This is good news. Some of you, by your faces, it doesn't seem like you think this is good news yet, but I promise you it's good news whether or not you know it or not. It's good news. If God is in control, then God is directly responsible for every evil thing that happens in this world. Listen to me. If God is in control, all evil originates in God. Let me give you an example. When Kevin Carter, award-winning photographer in the 80s and 90s, he started taking photography in Africa of the Civil War in southern Sudan in 1993. In 1993, he took a picture of a starving Sudanese girl. And in this picture of the starving Sudanese girl, she's emaciated. She's collapsed to her face. Her ribs are showing. She is at the point of death through starvation, and there's a vulture in the background waiting to devour this flesh. When Kevin Carter took this picture, he won a Pulitzer Award. He won the International Award. He became the most uh, famous photographer the world really knew in this season. From this point on, he talks the rest of his life how this image horrified him, so much so that he takes his own life. He lives for only a few more months before he transpires. 
He spent many of his days there in South Sudan taking pictures of great suffering, incredible suffering. Now, whether we realize it or not, leave the picture up a moment. Whether we realize it or not, when we say God is in control, what we, what we really believe, you won't admit it, you probably won't say it, but what you really believe down inside is we have a sense in which God is an agent in the world that could control what happens, but sometimes doesn't. So God is like this photographer. God is seeing it. God is seeing starvation. God knows it's going on. And sometimes he rushes in and takes the child and shoes the vulture away. And other times he steps back and he watches the child be eaten. That's what we believe. That's how we perceive it in our minds. That God does it sometimes and other times God doesn't do it. And when you talk about control, that's the only two options you have. That's why God is not in control. To be sovereign is to have a totally different perspective on this picture altogether. What do you mean, Craig? Yes, it is. Sovereignty is something differently. The only place control leads is that. God is able, but he doesn't do anything about it. Or God is able, and he does do something about it. But both are unfaithful ways of talking about God. Hear me carefully. It is not that God is not in control. It is not that God is at the mercy of what's happening in South Sudan. It is not that God is at the mercy of what's happening in our school system. But God is not in control in that way. He is not there able to do something but doesn't do something because he has some other plan. That is not a faithful way to read scripture. God is sovereign. Everybody say sovereign, which is altogether different. Let me explain it to you. I heard a sermon one time. The title was, Can I Trust God? And the answer, of course, is... Yes, but the reasoning for why you can trust God was what was very troubling to me. Because the, the preacher said the reason you can trust God is because God is in control. And the core imagery, simile, allegory, this preacher used to express to us how God is in control was Disney World. And what he said was that you go to Disney World and you're having a great time with the family, you're dying of heat stroke. You spend $36 for a Dasani water. You're waiting in line. But underneath Disney World, hidden from your view is a control center. And they've got cameras on every ride and every corner. And they're watching you. And they see you walking through the lines and picking up your pizza and getting your Coca-Cola Classic. And they want to make sure down there in the control center all the rides happen, function correctly, and no lines get too long. And, and make sure everybody having a good time. And the preacher said, that's just like God. No, it is not. No, it's not like God. It's not Disney World when people are dying in horrific tragedy and civil war in Sudan for the last 50 years. That's not Disney World. It's not Disney World when kids are blowing their brains out, 8,000 a week in our world. That's not Disney World. It's not Disney World, God down underneath somewhere watching what's happening in the world and yet he's in control and able to do something but doesn't do it. That's called wickedness. That's not God underneath in Disney World. We have to get rid of this notion of God being in control because if we don't, what we do is we try to comfort people and we speak death to everyone around us while we're trying to speak life. And we're having, trying to have faith that God is going to act on our behalf and we think God is in control. If you ever had this experience, let me explain to you. You can take the picture down. I can remember so many times in my life since I've known Jesus where I have remembered praying for someone to be healed. I mean, I prayed intimately and passionately for someone to be healed and it's not happening. 
And I remember when it didn't happen, in many times in my life, what I feel on the inside is anger. And I say, why, God? I've seen you heal my mom of non-alcoholic cirrhosis of the liver. I watched you. I watched you heal her. I've seen you do this before. Why not now? But see, that anger is because of a misunderstanding of God's promises. That I'm the only one responsible for healing. That anger is rooted in a disappointment from a false expectation that makes me think God's not coming through on His Word. That God's essentially not running the world like a Disney World park, pushing buttons and watching us on the screen. God is not that way at all. Listen to me. It's much more beautiful. It's much more complex. It is much more mysterious. And it's much more difficult to comprehend than that. But let me tell you the good news. It's much more hopeful than that too. To say that God is sovereign, what does that mean? Like when I stood over the lady, uh, the body of a 16-year-old girl, Sarah, that I did her funeral a few years ago, her body racked with terminal cancer, and she died of terminal cancer. And I stood there, and when her mom came and reached down and grabbed that body and tried to pull it up out of the casket, yelling on the last look, I've got to take you home and put you in my bed. Do I want to tell that mom God is in control? No. Do you want to tell that mom God has a plan? No, you don't. When you walk into a pediatric care ward of cancer with kids being eaten by cancer, we did a few years ago when we walked in Africa. We walked into a children's hospital. Do I want to say to those parents, God is in control? No, you don't want to say that. You're throwing rocks at them. When you walk into Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan, some war-torn area, and you look at those people, do you want to say to them, hey, good news, God is in control? No, you don't. What you want to say to them is God is sovereign. What does that mean? What do we mean by sovereign? Okay, I've led you up to this point. Let me give it to you. We mean that God acts in this time. He acts in this moment in time. But until the end of everything, God never does everything God can do. That's God's sovereignty. God is acting on the earth right now, but until the end of all of this, God never does everything God can do. Think about this for a moment. God acts. God is acting. God is intervening. We are not deists here. We're not like Thomas Jefferson. We don't think God started the world, put on a timer, and, and wiped his hands free of it and said it's all moving to an intended purpose. That's a deist. That's not what we're saying. God is absolutely acting. God is absolutely intervening. God is wanting to be a part of our lives. But until the end, until the coming of the Lord, he never acts fully. This is the way Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is what Paul says. He says, we now see through a glass dimly. That's what he says. A glass darkly. But then we shall see him face to face. That means that everything that happens in this world today, that God is active, but God is not doing everything that God can do yet. We don't see God do all that God can do yet. We see in a a dark glass mirror, not a clear glass mirror. God has not done all that God can do in the earth. So God has acted. God is acting in the earth. God has acted in your family. He's acted in my family. He saved my family. He saved. He's touched my body. He's touched my mother. God is acting. But there is still more for God to do that God has not yet done. And we are living between what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will yet to do one day. That's why we live by faith and not by sight. We live by faith. The only place we've seen God do everything God can do is in Jesus. The only place we've seen God do everything God can do is in the person of Jesus. 
And that's what makes us Christians, by the way. You know why we're Christians? Because we look at Jesus and we say, with faith, with defiance, when our God does everything God can do, it looks like that. When our God is fully able to be God in every situation, it looks like that. It looks like a a man born miraculously in Bethlehem, and he brings life and joy and hope and peace and comfort to everyone around him. He speaks truth to everybody he comes into contact with. He corrects every wrongdoing that he comes into contact with. He raises that child from the dead. He saves that woman from being stoned to death, who even when he dies, he passes out death on the other side into a whole new life. Why? Because when God does everything, Everything God can do, it looks like Jesus' relationship to God. But listen to me. That's only true for Jesus right now and not us. That's why you don't have a resurrected body. Because that promise ain't fulfilled yet. That's only true for him, not you and not me. Hebrews says it this way. He quotes Psalm 8. And he says, God... You have set all things beneath the feet of humanity. But we do not see that promise fulfilled yet. Did Jesus procure it on the cross? Yes, but is it done and actualized in all earth? No, it's not. Is it, folks? I mean, do you all see wickedness and evil all around? Does Satan still have the ability to attack people? But yet he's defeated, right? You see the contention. That God has not done all that God can do. He says, but we do not see that promise fulfilled yet, but, oh, here I love it. We do see Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, and we look to Jesus, we move towards obedience. My God, I feel the Spirit of God. You know what he's telling us? God has done everything God can do for Jesus, but he's not yet done all he can do for you, and he's not yet done all he can do for me. That's why I will live my life by faith and not by sight until the day I see him face to face. Until the end of all things, I live by faith and not by sight, which means I never, listen to me, say I never, I never can see all that God's doing. I never can see all that God's doing because I'm walking by faith and not by sight. (laughs) Now listen to me, church. This is good news, whether good or bad, listen to me. There will be things that happen in my life and in your life that are unfortunate. Okay? Anybody had an unfortunate thing happen this year? Okay, there will be things that will happen that are unfortunate. And then there will be things that are absolutely evil. You see the difference? The unfortunate things you can make it through, you can deal with. But there will be some things that happen in your life that you can't deal with. That are absolutely evil and demonic in source. And God is not doing that. And God is not allowing that. God is not through acting on that is what I want to tell you. That's what sovereignty is. God is not through acting in that situation, which is an entirely different way, church, to to perceive and understand or our total understanding of that. That that evil thing that happened to you, I'm speaking to you right here in this room. That evil thing that happened to you, God didn't do it. God didn't do it to you, and God didn't stand back like a photographer and watch it happen to you. God's sovereignty means God is not through being God to you in that situation. Did you hear me? God is not through being God to you. And yet, what it means to have faith is that you trust when God is done being God, that evil done against you will be made right. It won't be washed over. It, won't be made, it will be made right. It will not be forgotten. It will not be brushed over. Every wrong thing ever done against you, every evil thing ever done against you, God won't act like and pretend like it didn't happen. No. And if that doesn't happen, if the evil is not made right, then let me tell you something. Our hope is in vain, and we need to give up on Jesus today. 
He will make every evil right. Our hope is when God is done being God, and he's not yet. That's why the characteristic prayer of the Old Testament, you know what it is? It appears over 90 times. Hello, go Lord. What are they saying? I want the day of the Lord to come to make every wrong right. I want you to come now. What's the cry of the New Testament apostles? The heart of the prayer is, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Why? Because we've seen what you started to do, and we want you to finish what you started to do. Because when you finish what you started, everyone will know in sight what we already know in faith. Everyone will know in sight what we already trust in you and and know that you are good and that you are just, and you are just in all your ways. So the Old Testament has come. How long, O Lord? What's the New Testament? Come quickly, Lord Jesus, because we've already seen you inaugurate your kingdom, but you've not yet perfected your kingdom. And we need you to come. And we need you to make every wrong right. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Even so, come quickly. Come quickly. But until then, we have faith and not sight, which means we trust what our experience tells us is foolish. Can I preach just a minute? We trust what our experience denies. When you see with the eyes of faith, you understand what is happening to me is not true of me. You know what, you know what uh, Martin Luther said? He said, Martin Luther said, if we didn't have the scriptures and all we had was our worldview, we would have to come to understand that God is sovereign or God is in control and stands back and chooses not to work or our world is completely devoid of God. What's he saying? He's saying that in eyes of faith, we understand that what's happening to me is not actually true of me right now. What do you mean, Craig? Yeah, yeah. That there is coming a day where God is acting mysteriously and God's gonna continue to act mysteriously in the future in a way that makes what seems to be happening to me now untrue. You got cancer in your body? That's untrue of you. I'm not denying it. I'm just saying that there's coming a day when that will be made untrue. You got issues in your your body? Jesus took 39 stripes on his back for your healing. So though you may think it's true of you right now, there's coming a day when he acts mysteriously and it is not not true. What you think is happening to you today, Jesus will one day show that it's not true of your experience. He is making all things right. He is reconciling all things to himself. But until then, we have faith. What I'm experiencing now, Craig, is not the truth about me. What he's going to do with me is the truth about me. And so much in scripture points to this, right? We don't know yet. What does the scripture say? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered in the mind of, of man the things that he has prepared for us. That means what God is going to do for us in the future, not right now in the future not right now in the future not right now in the future eye has not seen ear has not heard it's not entered in the heart of man the things that God's prepared for us that's why we persevere trusting that when he does all that he can do then we will know what it means to say God is good we will really know in my faith tradition when I got saved we were the church I was a part of we had this tradition of saying God is good and the response was And then the preacher would say, all the time, and God is good. But listen to me, listen to me. There is a way to say that that is unfaithful. When you say God is good and what you mean is my life is going like I want it to and nothing evil is happening to me right now and my kids are not acting crazy and I'm not in foreclosure, you're saying it unfaithfully. When we say God is good, we don't mean life is going well. Right? When we say God is good, we mean it as a defiant act of faith and a confession despite what our world looks like. 
We don't mean God is good, life is going good for me. We mean no matter what's happening in our world, no matter what babies are dying in abortion clinics, no matter what babies are dying on killing fields across this nation, no matter what babies are dying and what disease and sickness and pestilence is, is destroying mankind, no matter what Christians are being martyred, no matter what Christians are being persecuted in foreign countries, we believe God is good and when God is done being God, everyone will know in the whole world in sight what we now trust in faith. God is good. We told you so. God is wise. We told you so. And God is just in all his ways. We told you so. That's faith. And until then, here's what we do. We keep disputing our experience with faithful claims. So we have a bad day, but we still make a faithful claim because God's not done being God. Craig, that's easy believism. No, 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 no. Listen. Listen. Our experiences sometimes seem to challenge the lordship of Jesus Christ. Did you just say that, Pastor Craig? I just did. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it again because it feels that way on this time of eternity. Our challenges we face sometimes seem like they're not submitted to God's lordship. Like they're not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So we stand beside the bed of a sick person and we say, God is able to heal you. And I'm going to pray for you because Jesus took 39 stripes on his back for you. And he is the Lord that heals you. And if God heals you, we will rejoice and we will say God is good. But we will look at you and whisper in your ear, but God has not done all that God can do in you. See, we sometimes think that's the, pit, the pinnacle of what God can do. Healing? You serious? You serious? We'll still say God's not done being God with you. And if you do not get well, and you die, and in five days I stand next to your graveside, I'm going to stand right next to your grave, and I'm going to say, along with this company of believers, that God is not through being God, and when he's through being God, death will be defeated. You will bust up out of this grave. This dirt will not hold you. Death will be defeated. He will wipe away every tear. He will make everything right, and we will know the joy of the Lord that Jesus knows right now in the Holy Spirit. See, this is why when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, we get an inkling of the kingdom that's to come. We get to, to, to engage in the tongue speech of a kingdom that is yet to come. We get to break in and experience the breaking in of God's kingdom and that's what we're hoping for that's what we're longing for and nothing less than that that's what it means to be a Christian we're waiting on God to finish what he started and we're trusting that it's coming for some of you this is going to sound surprising but for most of the history of the church I don't know if you know this but theologians have insisted that Jesus did not live by faith on earth Almost every church father says Jesus did not live by faith. They say Jesus lived in the fullness of love because everything Jesus did, he did in full communion with the Father. When we read the Gospels, for instance, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we never read where Jesus struggled whether or not God would act when he prayed. Did we? Has anybody ever read where Jesus prayed? We have no record of Jesus praying, and, and yet when he prayed, it not happened. But you and I even though we're joiners with Jesus, co-laborers with Christ, we know what it's like to pray prayers that don't seem to get answered. Yes? So we live by faith. That's why theologians have insisted that Jesus didn't live by faith. He lived by love, communion, perfect communion, perichoretic relationship with his Father. But there's a purpose of God in the fact that we don't get all of our prayers answered. You, you may show you why the purpose of God is for this. Let's go there. I'm, I'm about finished. Romans chapter five. Let me show you something really powerful. Starting in verse three, Romans five. Look what the Bible says. And not only that, but we boast in our sufferings. Wow. Does anybody else find it strange how often the New Testament apostles boast in sufferings? 
Is anybody else? Come on, does anybody, when you read these type of things, does anybody find it strange that every apostle boasts in his or her sufferings? Yeah. In fact, Paul tells the Philippians, you ready? He says, you've been graced to suffer. But in so much of what I've known about Christianity, the whole point of grace is to not have to suffer. But the scripture says you've been graced to suffer. Anybody else grow up in a faith tradition like this? Where grace was the, to get you out of suffering. But Paul says you're actually graced to suffer. In fact, Paul can even say this life is present suffering. Everybody say present suffering. The way Paul summarizes planet earth short of the coming of Jesus Christ is suffering. So it means all of our life is what? It's suffering. That's what Paul defines it as. Life on this planet is? It's present suffering. Life on this planet is? Present suffering. And God is not going to save us from that because God's trying to save us in that. Oh my God, I'm going to say it again. God will not save us from that because God's purpose is to save us in that. He will not save us from suffering because he wants to save us through the suffering. The scripture's very clear about this. This is how our salvation takes place. You want to be saved? Look how you're saved. Let me show you this. And not only that, we boast in our sufferings know that suffering produces endurance. Everybody say endurance. Endurance means perseverance. Listen to me. You listen to me clearly. Any form of Christianity or the faith that does not train us in patience is not true Christianity. If you've been taught that you don't have to have endurance or patience, you have not been taught the gospel. You've not been taught the gospel. And there are some forms of this faith, and it's in America, and it's rampant, that, that believe you don't need to have patience in order if you have faith. They think if you have faith, faith replaces patience. That's not what the scripture says. That whatever you're struggling with, if you know how to get in touch with God, go to the great man of God, he'll pray for you. That faith will overtake the patience. You don't have to suffer anymore. This is how we, this is how we teach, right? That if you have faith, then somehow suffering is obsolete. That you can get in touch with God and it'll be over. You can get out of it. I've, I've counseled people like this as a pastor. Here's what they think. You don't have to have that difficult conversation with another believer. Just pray and God will change their heart. Wrong. You got to have that difficult conversation. And sometimes there are ways in which the Holy Spirit does intervene like that, right? Oh my goodness, yes, he does. Please understand. To ex I believe wholeheartedly in the supernatural, but to expect that every time, all the time, then that means you will never suffer and you will never learn patience. And notice this, look at verse four. The suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Everybody say character. Listen to me, the only way in which Christ's character is gonna be formed in me is as the Lord lets me live in the midst of endurance. There is no other way to get Christ-like character. I gotta say it again. There is no alternative to Christ-like character other than enduring through suffering. No other way. There's no other way in the kingdom. We have to endure. We have to be patient. Now, I'm a believer in the supernatural. <laughs> We're a Pentecostal church. Dear God, we believe in the presence of God. You could come forward today and you get healed instantaneously. Can God do that? Oh, my goodness, can God do it? I've seen it hundreds of times. Things happen. God opens blinded eyes, doesn't he? These signs shall accompany them that believe. They lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. They do. But listen to me, that's never how character is formed. A lot of things, let me say it this way, a lot of things can happen in an altar call, but godly character can't happen in an altar call. 
I'm going to say it again. A lot of things can happen in an altar call, but spiritual maturity cannot happen in an altar call. We will never learn to love our enemies by having someone lay hands on our heads. The only way we learn to love our enemies is to have our enemies mistreat us over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And by God's grace and in God's grace, we learn how to respond like Jesus does to that person and not like how we want to respond to that person. There's no other way to to grow in Christ-like character other than enduring the hard times. This is the contention of Scripture. You have to do it. You have to put grit your face, so to speak, put your face like flint and say, God, produce in me great character. And here's what's so amazing. God entrusts us with that. I was so blown away with this week because God, in his sovereignty, creates us with freedom and then he entrusts us in horrible circumstances for us to be more like his son. He trusts you with a horrible work situation so that by his grace, you can grow more like his son. How crazy is that? He won't rescue from responsibilities. He gives you the responsibility. He won't rescue from the pesky person. He'll give you the pesky person to entrust the pesky person to help teach you how to respond to them the way he wants to. See, it's totally different. It's totally different than what we believe. Think of it like this. He goes on and says, and endurance produces character, and character produces what? Anybody want hope? And hope doesn't disappoint us. No, sir. My God, you feel the Holy Spirit in here? Am I I the only one today? And hope doesn't disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Think of it like this. When God breaks into your life, he pours his own life into you. But listen to me, church. The only thing that will literally activate the love in God in your life is the experience of suffering. I did not say the Holy Spirit sends suffering. God doesn't do it. He's not controlling it or manipulating you. But the only thing you can experience, and God knows this, that would trigger the character of God and enable you to step into the fullness of what God purposes you to be is to experience what the Lord experienced, and it's called suffering. And he knows this. Jesus made his kingdom this way. (laughs) He chooses to be involved and intervene in this way. That's why I told Tony, Tony, today, please sing the song, Man of Sorrows, because that's what he's known as. Jesus is the man of sorrows. He knows how to suffer and suffer well. And listen to me, church. Who's playing keys? Come on. To live a godly life, listen to me, to live a godly life always leads to suffering. Can I say it this way? The godlier you are, the more suffering you'll have. Let me, say, let me say it this way. The more Christ-like you are, the more suffering you have. Why, Craig? Because of your own suffering? No, 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 no. Not because of your own suffering alone. It's because at some point, life is no longer just about you suffering anymore. It's about taking on other people's sufferings. And the more Christ-like you become, the more you take on suffering around you. The more you take on difficulties and challenges around you. Because the godlier you become, it isn't just about what's happening in your life. You aren't just concerned about your life anymore. You're concerned about what's happening in the life of your neighbor. You're concerned about what's happening in the life of your coworker. You're concerned about what's happening in the life of the country next door to you. You're concerned about what's happening in the life of the people in your city 
city. So even if all things are going great in your life and your kids are obeying God and you're making good grades in school and all of your bills are paid, the person right down the street from you is suffering like you can't imagine. They are dying. They're about to commit suicide. They're trying to get away life's pains through, through, through substance abuse. They're suffering like you can't imagine. And when you grow like Christ, their problems keep you up at night. It's not about you than just making it through your suffering. It's about you heaping their suffering on you. It's about you bearing their suffering. Why? Because the more like Christ you become, the more burdens you take on. That's who we see in Jesus. We take them on and we say, I want to sit with you and I want to love you and I want to speak bread to you, not stone to you. And I want to care for you and I, I want to reach out to you. Because finally you recognize that's why you're in the world. You want to talk about spirit-filled believers? It's my passion of my life. This passage, ministry, ministry of God's spirit. You know why God put his spirit in you? For that reason. Not that you can just pray in some prayer language. It's so that you can take on the burdens of others and not be crushed. And his way, God's way of getting to the people of Woodstock is through you. God's way of getting to the people in your work is through your prayer. It's through your presence. It's through your sitting and listening. It's through your crying tears. They don't even know how to cry. They don't even know how to weep before God. And God wants you. That's why God's done it several times in my life. I was at a hospital years ago. I told my wife, I've got to leave you. I've got to go and walk the neighborhood. And I went and I stood next to the pond and knelt before the Lord. And the Lord opened up heaven. And I began to weep uncontrollably. It was a moment of grace. It doesn't happen all the time. I'm not saying it's going to happen every day. But when it happens, don't you dare fight it. Just allow the Lord to get to those people through your life. Just allow the Lord to use your life as a vessel of intercession. That's why we were in a prayer meeting a couple weeks ago, a leader meeting. And there was a prophetic word that came forth and a message in tongues and interpretation of tongues that God is calling forth the intercessors. Why? Because our inheritance in Woodstock is prayer for this city. Our inheritance is intercession for America. Our inheritance is intercession for lost people. And it's through you offering them bread and not rocks. And the more Christ-like you become, the more burdens you take on more you recognize their problem is my problem and what God is doing is he's waiting on us to become more responsible in earth there's a false understanding of our faith church I'm closing that says God has done all that he can do just trust it just trust it as if the goal is to try to become as irresponsible as possible like we've been trained to do this right we look at the problems of the world and here's what we do we're, we're Pentecostals we wave our hand at them and we speak some prayer that's really vague or we speak some blessing but you know what John said in 1 John? Here's what John said. If you see someone in need and you wave your hand at them, John said it. You wave your hand at them and say, be filled or be blessed, and you don't give them food, the love of God's not in you. Don't you wave your hand at anybody in need. No, you don't wave some vague blessing. You don't wave some vague prayer. We've been taught this way. Become irresponsible as possible. Let God do all the work. Wave your hand at them. No, 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 no. That's not what he says. Because when the love of God's in you, when you see the suffering of the world, that becomes your suffering, and you can't not step into it. You got to step into it. And you begin to cry, Lord, how long are you going to let these refugees experience what they're experiencing? How long, oh Lord, are you going to let these teenage girls experience the onslaught of condemnation from abortion after abortion? How long? Testament apostles, come quickly, Lord Jesus, make every wrong right. Come quickly. 
come quickly, Lord. Come quickly. Come quickly. Why? Because you're taking on Christ-like character. Think about Romans 8 as we close. Look at Romans 8. Wow. It says, creation is groaning, waiting for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God. This is going to sound heretical, but it's not. Creation is not waiting on God. Memo. Creation is not waiting on God. Creation is waiting on us. We are waiting of God, but everything else is waiting on us. What is the world waiting on? Waiting on for us to become the children that He has purposed us to be because we're meant to be co-labors with Him, joint heirs with Jesus Christ because every blessing the Father means for the Son, He means for us. And every responsibility the Father means for the Son, He means for us. And we share everything with Jesus and God is waiting on us to take our inheritance and our inheritance is intercession for the world. That's why Paul goes on to say, what can separate us from the love of God? Everybody say separate. And then he gives a list of possible separators. Same passage, Romans 8. Here's his possible separators. He says famine, disease, execution, sword. Why does he use those? Because the more like Jesus you become, those are the things you experience. Ding. Yeah? Yeah? Why does he list those? Because the more like Jesus you become, the more of those things you experience. Possible separators. But he said none of these things. Everybody say none can separate us from the love of God. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not through them, not over these things, not around these things, not bypass these things, but in all of these things. Not over these things, not expedite these things. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors. You know what that means? We are not conquerors and we're not to be conquered. We are we are more than conquerors. Conquerors and conquered is about control. When you talk about control, there are winners, that's conquerors, and there are losers, that's those who are conquered. When we talk about God, we are more than conquerors. We aren't conquered or we aren't conquering. We aren't killing our enemies or we are killed by our enemies. We are praying for our enemies. We are forgiving our enemies even when they threaten us because we understand, Paul said, that there is nothing, no, not nothing, that can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus because we are in Christ and in Christ, God has done everything God will do for Christ. So death has already been defeated in Christ. Healing's already provided in Christ. So as long as we stay in Christ, we will experience all that he has procured on our behalf. So whatever happens, we're going to be okay. To be more than a conqueror church is to be hanging on a cross. Saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. A conqueror? A conqueror would have... Would have never been on a cross and the conquered would have died with hatred in his heart for those who conquered him but to be more than a conqueror is you can kill me but you can't keep me from interceding for you right now you can betray me but I'll keep on loving you that's more than a conqueror you can you can do whatever you want to do against me but I ain't going to stop caring for you I'm going to keep loving you I'm going to keep praying for you I'm going to keep interceding you know no 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 you're not the conquered and you're not the conqueror no 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 we are more than conquerors we can stand in the midst of life's disappointments and say you do what you want to me but it ain't going to stop me loving you you can do what you want to my body but I'm going to keep on praying for you you can do whatever you want to my experience but I'll keep on loving you you can hate me but I'll keep keep loving you. Why? Because the love of God in me isn't from me. It's from the life of God flowing out of me. So if Psalm 91 can't be read, if we're in God, we'll never have trouble. How can it be read? Well, 
I'll end my message as we stand and open that passage again. Stand and open that passage. Let me interpret it, I think, the way that the psalmist tells us. Psalm 91, how do we really interpret this passage? Come on, team. How do we really interpret it? Look what he says in the last few lines of Psalm 91. What does it mean to hear it rightly? Here's what it means. If it doesn't mean being in God means no difficulty, what does it mean? Here's what it means. It means that God will teach us how to inhabit Him in the midst of all our difficulties. It means that God teaches us how to be inhabited in Him in the midst of all of our difficulties. Look at the last few lines. <laughs> wow. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. Did you see what he said? There will be what? You should better expect it. Here it comes. Jesus said, take heart. I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have trouble. I know it's hard to hear, but look what he says. I will rescue them and I will honor them. Everybody say honor. You listen to me. This is the part that came alive to me this week. When God has done all that God can do and when the end has come and we see him as he is, we will recognize all that he has given us right now in this time of faith, in what Jesus calls the time of faith fasting. We are entrusted to be his body in the world. And it is an honor to be so. It is an honor to suffer. It is an honor to go through this life in endurance. It is an honor to persevere with the spirit of the Lord in us. And the way that God has chosen to be God in the world is by wrapping his life so tightly around ours that everything God does in the world, he does through us. What can be more of an honor than that? God says, I'm not doing anything on earth that I will not do with you. That's an honor. We will know that he honors us. When we see him for who he is, we'll say, thank you so much much that you didn't just pull us behind on a sled. You put your coat around us and you walked with us and you did everything that you did in the world by doing it with us so that you didn't save anybody unless you saved them through the intercession of another believer. That you didn't reach out to another person who was hurting except through the arms and physical arms of another believer. That God says he wants to honor us. A few years ago I was sitting in a room with girls being rescued from Moldova from sex trafficking where they were sent out of their rooms at 18 years old and the pimps come in and they act like the pimps are, are giving them jobs but the people that are at the, the orphanages are so corrupt that they sell their 18 year old girls when they kick them out to these pimps to be sent in sex trafficking. I sat in a room for 8 hours one day and we put a camera in front of them and we let each one of them begin to testify of what God had done. I can't give you all the details. Some of them had axes thrown to them. Some of them had hatchets thrown to them. One girl said that her dad was mur her, her dad murdered her mom, sent her out into the town then took the mom and dumped her in a, in a in a ditch and came back and said go find your mom she's gotten drunk and done something she went and found her she brought her back when they found her Stella's house found her she was wrapped three days later her fingernails were into the skin of her mom on the wounds because she was trying to keep the body from bleeding and her mother had expired years ago and I'm or, or days ago and I'm sitting there listening to the stories and this young girl who's a part of of this story and a part of this ministry all she's doing is telling the stories and it was one of those moments where the glass that's really dark gets clear for a minute you remember those moments you ever had those it's where that glass gets real clear just for a moment and I could just see shining on this girl's face she was in her story how broken she was for these women she was broken for them and she was I listened to her talk about these women and speak about these women and tell their stories about suffering all she was doing was telling their stories and it was so obvious to me this is what it means to be like Jesus she ain't waving a blessing over them God be with them. She gets in their junk and she sits down and she listens to them and she doesn't have to figure out their problems. We need less solutions and more sitting. 
Bibles and open our ears and listen to people. Don't wave some hand at them. Cry with them. Weep with them. Speak bread to them. Tell them I don't understand all things. And as a Christian, I don't even understand why you're going through what you're going through. But I'll tell you, God's not done being God with you yet. Don't give them some cliche, God is in control. Throw stones at their head. No, God is sovereign. And you don't have to go to Moldova to find those people. All you got to do is walk 30 feet out of this front door. They're everywhere. That's the bread your neighbors need for. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.